0: Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungara people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This podcast episode is largely about addiction, and it also touches on suicide, mental illness and sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. Just before we start, a reminder about the first Forgotten Australia Book Club episode. I'll be interviewing Peter Doyle about his recent non fiction release, Suburban Noir, which is a cracking portrait of crime and punishment in Sydney in the 1950s and 1960s. We'll also be talking about Peter's other books, the non fiction Crooks Like Us and City of Shadows, and his four period crime novels, The Devil's Jump, Amaze Your Friends, Get Rich Quick, and The Big Whatever. There's a lot to talk about, and Peter would love to hear your questions about his work. So if you'd like me to read them to him in the episode, send them as an email to forgottenaustraliapodcast at gmail.com. But you can also record your question in a free audio file directly from your computer by going to speakpipe.com forward slash forgottenaustralia. Believe me, it's super easy. I've put the email address and that link into the show notes. So get your questions to me by the 27th of April and you'll hear them in the very first Forgotten Australia Book Club episode. Okay, on with the show. It's Tuesday the 27th of May, 1884, and Lady Munro is at a Melbourne restaurant sitting down to dinner with the well-known temperance advocate, Reverend McCutcheon. She's a little tipsy and the last 48 hours have been a little dramatic. On Sunday night, Lady Munro presented herself to the Salvation Army's Temperance Hall. She proceeded up onto the platform, and there she proclaimed herself converted. There was much rejoicing at the saving of such a significant soul from the demon drink and for the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Salvation Army leader Major James Barker was mighty pleased. But he was less pleased when Lady Munro returned to the Temperance Hall earlier tonight in a somewhat glorious state. Major Barker gave her a dressing down for being drunk. In reply, Lady Munro gave him a punch in the face. She'd been set on causing more of a scene when Reverend McCutcheon intervened. He tried to talk her down, talk her back around to the way of the Lord. But Lady Munro asked how could she be expected to listen when her stomach was so empty. Seeing the sense in this, the Reverend removed her to this restaurant. And now he's ordering food for the both of them. When he's done with that, Lady Munro calls the waiter aside and whispers something into his ear. When their server returns, it's with a gold top. That is, a bottle of Moet champagne. Reverend McCutcheon is flabbergasted. He tells her he's not paying for that, not paying for the demon drink. Lady Munro arcs up as only an angry aristocrat could. She remonstrates loud enough for the whole restaurant to hear. What sort of gentleman takes a lady to dinner and then refuses to pay for her order? The red-faced reverend realises he's been suckered in to this scene of sin. He can do nothing but cough up the cash and clear out leaving Lady Munro to enjoy her repast and raise her glass. This bubbly comic tale will be reprinted in newspapers all over Australia. And in each telling, it ends with the same punchline, saying that Lady Munro is, quote, prepared to be converted by any suburban corps of the army on the same liberal terms. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. You're listening to The Notorious Lady Munro, Part 2, Drunk Around the Universe. Part 3, A Most Remarkable Woman, will be released soon. But it's available now early and ad-free for Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. Remember, if you use Apple, you can take advantage of a free three-day trial to listen to part three of this episode and all the bonus shows currently available. Cancel before it expires and you won't pay a thing. The Lady Munro story about the Reverend and the restaurant was first recounted in Melbourne's The World Newspaper, but it was soon reprinted around Australia, including in the Hawkesbury Chronicle in New South Wales, Mount Gambier's Border Watch in South Australia, the Launceston Examiner in Tasmania, and the Ballarat Courier in Victoria. The Bulletin magazine also gave it a wild comic punch-up. For example, it had Lady Munro shouting at the preacher, Look at him! Isn't he a nice old rooster to go doing the la-di-da and then try to run me off on a three-bob tuck-out with a bottle of ginger ale to wash it down? Isn't he a jammy old blank? many, many readers around the colonies, particularly those fond of a tipple, would have had a hearty chuckle. They would have cheered Lady Munro getting the better of those newly arrived Christian cranks who were characterized in this article by the bulletin as tambourine thumpers whose hallelujahs were as loud as Lindberger cheese or a field of artillery guns. Lady Munro, having raised herself from the dead so recently, had continued to provide comedy across the colonies. Yet, behind the antics, there was a real woman who was addicted to alcohol. Stories of her suffering were reported, but they weren't widely reprinted. A few weeks before her Salvation Army comic drama, Lady Munro had been in Melbourne court on the usual charge. The well-known city magistrate, Mr. Call, had asked another city missionary named Mr. Hill, Can nothing be done for this unhappy creature? Is there no institution into which this poor woman can be got? Mr. Hill had to reply that none other than Dr. John Singleton, Melbourne's leading philanthropist, and Mr. Panton, the city's other prominent magistrate, had already tried to do their best for her. Mr. Hill said, quote, More money has been spent upon her than six other persons, and all in vain." At this point, Lady Munro piped up, "'I hope your worships will let me go this time. I will not drink any more. I feel it is killing me.' Mr. Call had said, "'Go, and do try to keep yourself sober.'" But Lady Munro couldn't. In this, she was like another Melbourne rascal of this period. This was the hangman, Elijah Upjohn. There's a reasonable chance that Lady Munro even bought a round of drinks for the man who'd necked Ned Kelly, and who was then on his own slide into drunken degradation. As was noted in passing by the Melbourne Herald at this time, the lady and the hangman were fellow lodgers in a hotel in Lonsdale Street. Elijah Upjohn's career as executioner would soon be over, and, seeking protection from the larrikins who hunted him, he'd make his own conversion to Major Barker and the Salvos. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be any more successful than Lady Munro's had been. Lady Munro's next attempt to get dry came in Sydney around the end of August 1884. This time her conversion came thanks to members of the Blue Ribbon Gospel Army. This was an 1880s temperance and reformation charity established in Sydney by young philanthropist and evangelist George Edward Ardell. Like the Salvos, they preached where the larrikins lurked of a night time. This particular evening, they held a service in Liverpool Street. It was a wild scene. The bulletin depicted Lady Munro carousing with larrikins and larrikinesses, them all drinking and mocking these temperance advocates. Some of these hooligans even threw drinks at the Christian soldiers. Lady Munro had elbowed her way to the front and supposedly asked, Are you game to give us a feed if I'll be saved? The Blue Ribboners, just like the Salvos, would have seen saving her as an almighty prize. So they tried to take her away, only for the larricans to pelt them with, as the bulletin said, A whirlwind of carrots, clay, and pebbles, and a whirlpool of beer, rum, and whiskey. In this chaos, Lady Munro was three times rescued by her larrikiness sisters in sin, and three times prized back for the Lord by the Blue Ribbon Army members. They won, and Lady Munro was lodged in one of their homes for inebriates. Did the cure take? It seemed to, for about six months or so. At the end of April 1885, on a Sunday night, at St. James's Church in Sydney's King Street, the Reverend Latimer was doing what his ilk did during services all around Australia and the rest of the empire. That is, he was offering the usual prayer for Albert Edward, Prince of Wales, and the rest of the royal family, and urging the congregation to join in. But from one person in the congregation came the cry of, No! this was Lady Munro. Albert, the Prince of Wales, was of course the cad who'd seduced her so-called sister, Lady Mordaunt, only for her to be divorced and committed to a lunatic asylum. The evening news resorted to a headline it had already used the year before, Lady Munro again. It told readers of the aftermath of Lady Munro's sacrilege, After some difficulty and persuasion on the part of the vigilant vergers who were quickly on the spot, the anti-loyalist was passed out, not, however, without a stamping of feet and other signs of obstinacy on the part of the delinquent. Just a week or so later, she was back in the evening news. This time Lady Munro had been the subject of discussion at a meeting of the committee for the Sydney School of Arts. She was a member, and when she was out of jail... The secretary said she'd turn up to the school drunk, so he was proposing that her membership should not be renewed after her present subscription had expired, and they should thereafter refuse her money. He told the meeting that she'd once thrown a bouquet of flowers at a library official and another time had playfully hit the honorary treasurer on the chest with her basket. The committee carried the motion banning Lady Munro. But then, realising they'd done this in the presence of the evening news reporter, they asked him not to file his story. Of course, that made it even more newsworthy, and the paper censured the committee for trying to censor the press. By the end of 1885, Lady Munro was back in Melbourne, this time reported by the Fitzroy City Press under the name of Emma Washington, alias Elizabeth Munro, quote, "...a genuine descendant of English aristocracy." Lady Munro was still drunk when she fronted the court this time, and she said to the magistrate, Let me off. I have not been here for a long time. What he did was put her in jail to dry out for a week. Here are a few other Lady Munro snapshots from this time. April, 1886, Melbourne. In a state of drunken excitement, she rushed up and down Lonsdale Street, knocking over a tipsy man outside a hotel, this gentleman suffering facial cuts. Lady Munro was fined 60 shillings or one month in jail. July 1886, Melbourne. Lady Munro nicked some books from a hawker trying to sell them in a hotel bar, and then, when he demanded their return, she created a disturbance of larrikinesses in the street, these sisters supposedly pelting the man with stones. Lady Munro got five and a half days' imprisonment, added to the days she'd already spent behind bars. February 1887, Melbourne Lady Munro was found drunk and unconscious on a city footpath at 1.30 in the morning. She told the court she had laid down because she felt ill and had then fainted. This didn't quite explain why she was nearly naked, but the sympathetic magistrate, Mr. Call, let her go. Despite his leniency, Lady Munro's presence in Melbourne at this time, February 1887, had to give some authorities the absolute heebie-jeebies. That was because Lord Dudley and his son William Moncrief had just reached the city. They were, respectively, the husband and son of Georgina, the Countess of Dudley, and Lady Munro's claimed sister. The Dudleys were on a world tour on their steam yacht, and the fact that they'd come to Melbourne and Victoria was a great honour for the city and the colony. But with Lady Munro lurking about, the potential for aristocratic embarrassment was simply huge. So, what did she do? Did she make herself known to her so-called relatives? There was nothing in the newspapers about any such reunion. At least then. But truth would much later print the following, quote, Lady Munro, who had just received her remittance and was radiant in a 13-guinea dress and 3-guinea hat, called on them at their hotel. But Lord Dudley, his son and their party had anticipated such danger and they'd directed the hotel staff to say they weren't there if any so-called lady should come to visit. Thing was, Lady Munro turned up dressed to the nines and she had a fine carriage and horses by the curb. Truth said she, quote, looked so like a person plethorically abounding in cash and social prestige. Bowled over, the hotel staff simply ushered her inside and took her to her unsuspecting relatives who were then receiving actually decent people. Lord Dudley and company were above being rude. Truth, quote, Their reception of Lady Munroe was polite but chilling in the extreme, though they adopted the better course of not causing a scene. She, however, was thoroughly dissatisfied with their treatment of her and retired early, Her once handsome head held loftily and her nose tip-tilted in frozen scorn except lady munro then got a few drinks into her and decided she'd go back to the hotel she was also too canny and classy to insult her brother-in-law or her nephew instead as truth related Like a Salvation Army convert, she testified to her own unworthiness in the plainest and most powerful language, not because she repented of her sins, but because she wished to let the people of the hotel know how disgracefully low was a near relation of her high relations. True said that this incident ended with Lady Munro being forcibly taken in a cab to Russell Street Police Station. Did this actually happen? We don't know. But it's fair to say that the Dudleys wouldn't have wanted this in the courts or in the newspapers, and that in 1887 Melbourne, they wielded the sort of power and privilege that would have seen the police and the press do their bidding. July 1887, Sydney. Lady Munro made multiple court appearances, made more promises to go straight, and broke all of them. Them crumbling, as one magistrate said, like the proverbial pie crust. October, 1887, Newcastle. More of the same. Sergeant James McVane, who had first met Lady Munro early in the decade when he was a constable in Sydney, was now stationed in Newcastle. He'd later write, quote, A benevolent lady in the Newcastle district took charge of her at one time and kept her sober for some months, but one day, she was left sitting in the Lady's Phaeton in the principal street at Newcastle when she jumped out and walked off. Shortly afterwards, she was waltzing about the footpath. January 1888, Sydney. Lady Munro likely missed out on the centennial of white colonization because she was again in the hands of the police. At this time, Melbourne's magazine Table Talk fretted about Lady Munro and, as was regularly the case with publications, it further muddled her backstory. Quote, is there no room at some lunatic asylum for this poor creature, who is the lawful wife of an English baronet and sister to the Countess of Dudley? April 1888, Newcastle. Lady Munro stood up in a church during Sunday service to ask the minister to offer up a prayer for a daughter of the House of Moncrief that she'd made this claim in the house of god was reported the next day all over australia these little articles concluding with the obligatory she figured amongst the drunks at the police court this morning lady munro became particularly notorious in newcastle her mo was that she'd buy a boat ticket to get herself back to sydney then she'd get drunk and miss the boat wind up in court and promise that she was about to get on her way This near-escape cycle happened three times across three consecutive days in June 1888. Shortly afterwards, there was another very public conversion to temperance that was quickly followed by relapse and jail, and then a reconversion that actually seemed to hold for a while. Lady Munro stayed dry that July. She had an abstinent August, but then took a snifter in Sydney in September and found herself back in Central Police Court. She found it very unsatisfying. Not the drunkenness charge, which she admitted, but the actual court itself. She asked the magistrate, couldn't somebody give this place a clean? Lady Munro expressed the same sentiment when she was back there two weeks later. She told the magistrate that she dearly hoped the next time she came before him, it'd be in more agreeable surroundings. Funnily enough, Lady Munro got her wish. Just weeks later, the Central Police Court, which had been in service for 60 years, was closed so it could be demolished to make way for a square that would itself soon make way for the Queen Victoria building. Meanwhile, Lady Munro went back to Newcastle and racked up conviction after conviction. Finally, her old nemesis, Sergeant McVane, charged her as a habitual drunkard. In court, explaining the disturbance that had led to this, her latest arrest, Lady Munro said she'd been about to return to Sydney by steamer, but larrikins had been following and harassing her. Lady Munro, give us a drink, they were shouting, to which she replied, go away, you common men. Lady Munro told the court that 20 or 30 people had been trailing her. She said that crowds were always on her heels. It was bad enough in Sydney, but far worse in Newcastle. It was bad enough that a decent woman couldn't get around without being harassed, but then Sergeant McVeigh had made things worse by arresting her without warning. Lady Munro told the court she had not been staggering and she had not been dragged to the lockup. She wasn't without money, she'd just drawn on a cheque. Lady Munro had a lawyer and he said that his client had been unoffending it had been the crowd following her that had caused the problem. Meanwhile, Sergeant McVane, the lawyer said, had made the harsh habitual drunkard charge in response to, quote, a hint dropped from the bench recently. Except McVane would remember it differently, writing, quote, I suggested to the magistrate that a lengthy sentence would give her a chance to recover from the effects of heavy drinking and be in her own interest. She got four weeks on that occasion, and never forgave me for my part in the matter. McVane's memory played up in his memoirs here, because, as recorded at the time, Lady Munro actually got four months in jail. For this, she'd try to avenge herself on the copper. If she'd succeeded, Lady Munro might have been hanged. See, on her release, she made good on her promise to leave Newcastle by going to Sydney. But then, a few days later, she came right back by steamer. Sergeant McVane just happened to be on the wharf when this boat arrived, and he went aboard. He'd recall, I was standing looking down the hold at the men slinging cargo when her ladyship came out of the cabin, and when she saw me, she rushed and pushed me over the hatch. But luckily I had good hold of the stanchion and saved myself from falling down the hold. Lady Munro shouted that he'd stuck her in jail for nothing. McVane recalled that he made her even angrier with his reply. Quote, when I laughed and told her it had done her good and that she was looking much better for the change, she became so furious that I had to clear out and leave her. Then it was off to Melbourne. In November 1889, she allegedly knocked over a milkman's cart on Exhibition Street. The Herald newspaper had a lot of fun with this. Quote, she had a grudge against society to satisfy, and determined to satisfy it through the medium of the dairyman. So she upset his cart, and, the cans being full, the milk went flowing down the gutter, while her ladyship stood by, clapping her hands in the height of her jubilation. At this stage, a constable came up, into whose custody the titled virago was given. Her tongue was exercised to the best advantage, and to such account that a crowd soon gathered. There might have been no sense crying over spilt milk, but the dairyman's five quarts of moo juice had been worth four shillings and he wanted her to face justice in court. The Herald's reporter seemed struck by awe and by pity. Quote, A commanding-looking female who stood erect and defiant at the bar of the city court this morning riveted the attention of all present. She addressed the bench in a few hurried words, and it was evident from her manner and style of speaking that she was something more than an ordinary street vagrant, though her bedraggled appearance betokened a close acquaintance with the slums and association with the very worst characters. In court, Lady Munro said she didn't see what all the fuss was about. If she had upset the milkman's cart, it had been an accident. As a lady, she'd pay for any damage, and as she could pay for it, she didn't see what it had to do with anyone, least of all the magistrates. The magistrates disagreed and issued a modest fine. Lady Munro bounced off up to Albury, where successive days of antics and court appearances ensued. Just before Christmas 1889, an exasperated magistrate locked her up for six months in Wagga Wagga Jail. Upon hearing this sentence, Lady Munro looked on the bright side, quote, I shall be well off when I come out, I shall have two quarters money. Six months later, June 1890, so it was. She came out loaded, and was completely loaded when she came steaming into Sydney on the steam train. Lady Munro went straight from Central Station to Central Police Court, and then into what Australian Town and Country Journal called her usual hotel, the lock-up. Lady Munro kept him laughing with another ecclesiastical outburst that October. This time at a church service in Balmain, when the reverend asked the congregation to pray for the Prince of Wales, Lady Munro shouted, Don't pray for that blanky blank, he's no blank good. The bulletin reported, quote, Without much ceremony, the desecrator, who was no other than Lady Munro, was promptly bundled out, but not before the congregation broke into a snigger, which a subsequent sermon on hellfire couldn't frighten off their faces. While we heard in the first instalment how Lady Munro wasn't Lady Munro, it was only a decade or so into her notoriety that writers for the Bulletin and for other publications tried to settle the question of her aristocracy once and for all. They had ascertained that Sir Thomas Moncrief had eight daughters, naming them all and their respective high-born husbands and noting they all resided in England. None were Lady Munro. The Bulletin would, a few years down the track, claim that she was actually a cousin to Lady Mordaunt, but it offered no proof of this either. Lady Munro went back to Melbourne in the spring of 1890 and had more court appearances, one for drunkenly defying a dozen cops to lock her up Another for borrowing a gold bangle from a barmaid who subsequently, sympathetically, dropped the charge. Lady Munro was now around 37 years old, and despite everything, she was, in the words of a Newcastle Herald correspondent, quote, still a fine-looking woman with a good figure and dresses stylishly. Next, Lady Munro's tour took her to Adelaide. At first, the city didn't take any special notice of Lady Munro. While her drunkenness convictions would later be noted, they didn't make the newspapers at the time. Then, all of a sudden, Lady Munro was a household name in Adelaide, and once again, in the newspapers across the colonies. This time, she might have cheated death, but she'd certainly cheated a fate which many considered worse than death. It wasn't what she'd done, though that was certainly part of the story, but what had been done to her. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In the very early hours of Sunday morning, the 23rd of August, 1891, after drinking the previous evening, Lady Munroe got a horse cab and alighted near the King's Head Hotel in the centre of Adelaide. She was passing Whitmore Square when she was attacked by four men and they carried her into an empty house. There, in a darkened room, they held her down. One had her head, another had her legs. They tried to gag her, verbally abused her, and prepared to do worse. Lady Munro did not submit. She kicked, she struggled, and she screamed murder. City beat cop Constable Stroud heard her cries and he hurried into the property. He encountered a larrikin he knew, leaving by a back lane. This bloke denied knowing what was going on before he bolted. Unable to catch him, Constable Stroud felt his way into the dark house. The woman was still crying out, "'Murder! Mercy!' and "'You villains! Let me alone!' Constable Stroud came into a black room and grabbed at the shadows, nabbing a larrikin." As the officer and this would be rapist fought, one or two other men fled unseen from the room. Constable Stroud had a hold on a man named David Smith, aged 22, and he struggled violently before he was finally subdued and handcuffed. Lady Munro told Constable Stroud, Thank God you have come. You have just saved me. David Smith was taken to the watch house, and Lady Munro was taken to Adelaide Hospital. Constable Stroud had recognised the larrikin who was leaving the house as William Valency, who had previously been tried and acquitted for rape. Constable Stroud and other police on the beat had shortly beforehand seen him and David Smith loitering nearby in the company of fellow larrikins James Hanley and Martin Herricks. Valency, Hanley, and Herricks were rounded up. David Smith and his mates had clearly been intent on raping Lady Munro. What would they have done after that to stop her from identifying them? It's possible they might have killed her in that darkened house. They'd only been stopped by Lady Munro's brave fight and the arrival of Constable Stroud. All four larrikins were charged with indecent assault. A doctor examined Lady Munro, seeing the bruises she'd sustained on her legs from kicking her assailants and on her arms from where they'd held her down. Her attackers were brought in. Lady Munro could identify David Smith, but not the other three. All four larrikins were in police court on Tuesday morning, and Lady Munro was there to testify. The Barrier Miners correspondent, who'd cover the proceedings, said he'd seen her before in Sydney, Melbourne, and in Brisbane, in the police courts. But this was the first time he'd seen her as a prosecutrix. All things considered, he thought she was looking pretty good. Quote, Lady Munro was rather stylishly dressed, and, to speak the truth, her dissipation has not greatly altered her appearance since we last two met. Lady Munro gave clear evidence of the attack, but seemingly wished she was elsewhere. The Barrier Miner reported, Her present position was not pleasant. I think she relished it less than when, placed behind the bars herself, she gaily pleaded guilty to drunkenness, paid her fine, and skipped across to the opposite hotel. But Lady Munro did seem to relish the opportunity to go toe-to-toe with the Defence Council. The barrier miner said she came to life when cross-examined by a, quote, foeman worthy of her steel. Against her was Charlie Kingston, QC, the irrepressible, and they had a lively time indeed. This was Charles Cameron Kingston, barrister representing David Smith. C.C. Kingston was the son of a pioneering South Australian surveyor, architect and politician but he was to become even more prominent than his father. He'd be credited with originating the Immigration Restriction Act, better known as the White Australia Policy. But he'd also introduce the law reforms that gave women the vote, making South Australia the second place in the world with female suffrage after New Zealand. C.C. Kingston, who's commemorated with the statue in Victoria Square in Adelaide, was a big fellow. He stood over six feet tall, was a former footballer, and was a sergeant in the volunteer military forces. Ostracised by Adelaide society because he'd fathered an illegitimate son, he was a liberal and a hero to the working class, and no friend of conservatives. By 1891, C.C. Kingston had been in Parliament for a decade, had twice served as Attorney General, and had been a QC for three years. What sort of opponent was he? Well, within a year of the Lady Munro case, he'd try to fight a revolver duel with another politician right there in Victoria Square. C.C. Kingston would be arrested for this and punished with a 12-month bond. And this punishment would still be in effect when he became South Australia's radical liberal premier in 1893. I include this little portrait by way of saying that C.C. Kingston was nothing if not a formidable adversary. Further, he had no real reason to offer Mrs. Munro, aka Lady Munro, any quarter at all when they faced each other on Tuesday the 25th of August, 1891, in the city's police court. What C.C. Kingston wanted to do was discredit her, and that made it curious that he didn't try to assail her aristocratic lineage as a lie. In court, he asked her, What is your husband's name? She answered, Captain John Watson Munro of the 75th Highlanders afterwards changed to the Black Watch. As noted in the first instalment, this man did live in Brisbane and had been in the 75th Highlanders. But there's no record he was married to Lady Munro before he married another woman in Armadale in 1882. C.C. C. Kingston asked in court, What is your maiden name? Lady Munro answered, Harriet Elizabeth Moncrief, But I usually take the name of Elizabeth Moncrief. Now, Harriet was the first name of her supposed sister, Harriet Sarah Moncrief, the world famous scandalous Lady Mordaunt, divorced by her husband, Sir Charles Mordaunt, in 1870 because of her alleged affair with the Prince of Wales. But as we've heard, our Lady Munro wasn't one of Sir Thomas Moncrief's acknowledged eight daughters and this had been revealed in the colonial press by 1891. Even so, C.C. Kingston didn't pursue the family angle. Instead, he asked, Have you often given evidence in court? Lady Munro answered, I have, during my tour around the world. She continued, I have been drunk all over the universe, at Paris, Brussels, Antwerp, Brisbane, New Zealand, in fact, in all parts of Australasia. C.C. Kingston asked how often she'd been in the police court, And this caused her to laugh, and she replied, You amuse me very much, Mr. Kingston, although you are not Sergeant Ballantyne yet, big as you are. Obscure now, this reference would have been understood by most people then. Sergeant Ballantyne was not a policeman in Australia. His name was William Ballantyne, and he was a London barrister, who'd been one of the last sergeants in the courts before that position was abolished in 1873. Why was Sergeant Ballantyne famous? For two cases particularly. He'd represented Sir Charles Mordaunt when he divorced Lady Mordaunt. While her counsel had spent seven minutes deposing the Prince of Wales, Sergeant Ballantyne had elected not to cross-examine His Highness. Sergeant Ballantyne's other big case was perhaps also close to Lady Munro's heart, but for another reason. In 1871, Sergeant Ballantyne had represented a different sort of aristocrat, Australian man Arthur Orton, who famously claimed to be Roger Tickborn, the missing heir to the Tickborn Baronetcy. Arthur Orton was later convicted of perjury and sent to prison. So while Lady Munro had put C.C. C. Kingston in his place by diminishing his skills with her insult, She'd done so with reference to the barrister involved in both her alleged sister's royal scandal and the era's most infamous case of an aristocratic imposter from Australia. Lady Munro had thus opened the door for C.C. Kingston to attack her claims to noble blood. But he didn't go there. Lady Munro went on. She said she'd been in courts for drunkenness maybe 100 times, but never faced such charges in England or Europe only in Australasia. C.C. Kingston possibly asked if she herself had been represented in London by Sergeant Ballantyne. There's a hint of this because, in answer to a question that was unrecorded by the newspapers, she said, I have never appeared in the Old Bailey. My father cut his timber down rather than I should. Perhaps this got her thinking about justice back home because she stared hard at the four defendants, the men who'd tried to rape her, and said... If you were in Scotland, you'd be hanged. His Honour reminded Lady Munro that she must confine herself to answering questions. C.C. Kingston asked, How long have you been in the colonies? Lady Munro replied, I landed at Wellington, New Zealand, about 13 years ago, but I went home again in the ship Afghan. Now this did come close to aligning with the account we heard in part one from Professor James Park saying he'd come to Wellington with his sister Elizabeth Munro at the end of 1874 but she'd soon left to be with her husband, Captain John Watson Munro of the 75th Regiment. But as we also heard, Our Lady Munro was not that Elizabeth Munro, and that Elizabeth Munro, as far as the record allows, was not married to Captain Munro. C.C. Kingston's cross-examination continued. How many times have you been brought up for drunkenness? Lady Munro replied, I don't know, 200, 150, about 100. This was a very, very modest estimate. C.C. Kingston asked, have you been in the asylum? No, he followed. Have you been locked up since you came here? Yes, for being drunk. May I take it that you are an habitual drunkard, Lady Munro? It was interesting that even this barrister lapsed into using her title. She responded, No, I have never been arrested on that charge. That was, of course, patently untrue, at least in other colonies, but it did seem to be true here in South Australia, and Lady Munro, during her long career, would often answer the bench with such passing of the truth. C.C. Kingston asked about the night leading up to the attack Were you drunk on this particular evening? Not particularly drunk. Where were you at eight o'clock on Saturday night? I dare say I was tipsy in Hindley Street. Are you a chaste woman? I don't care to answer. I don't think that is a proper question. I pressed the question. I am as far as Australia is concerned. He asked, will you pledge your oath to that? She responded, I cannot tell a lie. That is one thing the Moncriefs were always taught to obey. Another chance to question her background, another chance he didn't take. Instead, he asked, "'Are you in the habit of walking the streets at night?' "'Yes, at all hours.' "'Always alone?' "'Toujours, Padre. Always alone. I go about singing Obadiah or the Bonnie Hills of Scotland or My Pretty Jane or anything else that occurs to me.' Ceci Kingston asked, "'Did you go to the Royal Admiral after eight o'clock? I think that is the hotel you favour with your patronage.' Lady Munro replied, "'Oh, yes.' I am hanging out there till my funds arrive. Did they tell you to go to bed? She responded, Yes, but why should I go to bed at that hour? Not me. I objected because I could get another nip. CC C. Kingston, Do you drink with strangers? No. Lady Munro here swore that she never accepted drinks from strangers, but when she had coin, she would drink with people. And then they'd play drafts, chess, cards, or whatever else. She went on, if I know a man, I speak to him, but if a man I did not know spoke to me, I would give him a punch in the eye. The Australian coat of arms. The court burst into laughter at this. C.C. C. Kingston asked if she'd ever taken money from men. Here, he was angling to imply she was a woman of ill repute. Lady Munro said no, she never accepted money from men, although a Mr. Griffin and others in Queensland had helped her out when she was up there. C.C. Kingston knew who she meant. A Brisbane publican. You mean Mr. Griffith, he corrected, adding. But you need not knock the man's name as well as his reputation about. Lady Munro shot back with mockery from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, he jests at scars who never felt a wound. The court echoed with laughter. She'd scored again. Yes, what would the mighty C.C. Kingston know about being hard up for a sovereign? Lady Munro explained, Oh well, in Brisbane, if I wanted a solve, I would say to Teddy Griffiths, lend us a solve. Lady Munro said on the Saturday evening before the attack, she'd had plenty of drinks and just before 11 was refused a nip at the Criterion Hotel. She'd then taken a cab and she'd paid the cabbie to Bob. CC Kingston wanted to know: had she spoken to anyone then? She replied, After leaving the cab, I may have talked to several persons I know from Brisbane and other colonies, bookmakers, spielers, etc. Many are staying where I am. I could not say how many people I spoke to on Saturday night. C.C. Kingston asked, what hour was this? She shot back, how would I know the time when I was thinking of getting the next Lush? But what she did know was, quote, the defendants came up behind and seized me. While she could identify David Smith, it was clear she thought the other three men were guilty. She had, after all, said, if they were in Scotland, they'd be swinging from the gallows. But she wasn't going to tell a lie in court to convict them. That ended C.C. Kingston's cross-examination. Writers remarked on how she had a fine presence, had answered questions with coolness, and that her replies evinced both a classical education and an acquaintance with the Australian vernacular but she'd also been eccentric. They said she laughed frequently and had sobbed once. The Newcastle Herald said that C.C. Kingston, quote, had considerable difficulty with her ladyship, who would stand no bluffing and knocked the burly council completely off his perch by volubly anesthematising him in French. Counsel for the other three accused men did not cross-examine Lady Munro. Perhaps they feared they'd really come off second best. In any case, she hadn't identified their clients, William Valency, James Hanley, and Martin Herricks. Lady Munro departed the witness box unbowed and unbroken, and she then left the courtroom. It's not unfair to presume that she made a beeline for the nearest pub. After her departure, other witnesses testified. The doctor who'd examined her in Adelaide Hospital around 3.30 on Sunday morning told of her bruises and abrasions. He couldn't say whether she'd sustain them fighting for her honor, but nor would he swear that she was drunk when she was brought in. All he could say for sure was that she was eccentric and talked in a lordly manner. Constable Stroud testified that he'd arrested David Smith while he was in the act of assaulting Lady Munro. He said before this he'd encountered William Valency leaving the premises and this man had run away from him. Constable Stroud said he'd also encountered the other two accused in the company of Smith and Valency earlier in the evening nearby. As for Lady Munro, the constable said he'd never seen her under the influence enough to warrant her arrest, but he did know she was eccentric and given to drink. It was up to the magistrate now to decide whether the four men should go to trial. He ruled there was no evidence against Hanley and Herricks, and both of these men were discharged but David Smith and William Valency were to stand trial for indecent assault. With this ruling made, someone was sent to find Lady Munro. For the trial to go ahead, she'd have to sign a recognizance promising that she'd appear as the chief crown witness. Lady Munro came back into court, holding flowers in one hand and waving a newspaper in the other. "'Look what they've called me,' she said to the magistrate, pointing to the headline. It was Adelaide's evening journal." The afternoon edition had already hit the streets, printed while the proceedings were still underway. The headline? A serious charge. A dipsomaniacal aristocrat. Drunk all over the universe. Was it not a shame, Lady Munro asked the magistrate, for such things to appear in the paper? It wasn't the drunk all over the universe line to which she objected. She said in a dejected tone, a dipsomaniacal aristocrat. Papers would report, quote, then in the same tone looking as if she were going to weep she repeated the words the melancholy expression on her face suddenly vanished and with a smile she uttered some words which were inaudible it was only after persuasion however that she could be got to sign the recognizance she left the court smiling but for lady justice to prevail lady Munro would have to be sober enough to give evidence. When Lady Munro professed that she'd been drunk all over the universe, her quote made it into at least 20 newspapers in five colonies. Yet, reading the Adelaide newspaper's coverage of the case, she took issue with something else. In her evidence, Lady Munro had spoken about associating with Speelers and other incorrigibles who also stayed at the Royal Admiral Hotel. Seeing her words in black and white, and perhaps having them stuck in her face by her landlords, was to realise she'd given offence and perhaps even committed slander. In the papers that had reported this, she placed an apologetic advertisement the following day. Quote, It was a fault on my part. Being cross-examined by Mr. Kingston on other subjects, I made a blunder, which I hope you will be kind enough to contradict. No spielers or bookmakers stay here. Good breeding and good sense. Not what you'd expect from your ordinary lady inebriate. A few days later, a correspondent for the South Australian paper, York's Peninsula Advertiser, reported his encounter with Lady Munro. Quote, I saw down the street last Monday morning a remarkable woman. The circumstances under which I saw her were rather peculiar. She stopped in front of a gentleman's buggy with her arms spread out like a scarecrow. The result was the horse had to stop. The driver, resorting to strategy, moved the horse just sufficient for the animal's nose to touch the lady's face. She drew herself up, smacked the brute on the head, and jumping aside, folded her arms like a policeman while the driver went on. The stranger calls herself Lady Munro. It is her real name, and no one can dispute her title because it is genuine. When her parents pass from this veil of tears, Lady Munro, who has plenty of money even now, will succeed to an estate worth, at the very least, £60,000. Unfortunately, she is out of her mind and has been roaming Australia in this manner for the last five years. But how she reached Australia from England, where her parents reside, is a mystery. All the same, Lady Munro is in Adelaide, and although she justly claims an exalted title, the poor soul hasn't yet been invited to government house. This is a peculiar world. The specifics this writer gave, such as her £60,000 inheritance, seemed plucked from the air. Yet there's no reason to doubt that he saw what he said he saw, Lady Munro facing down a horse and buggy. And it was for this sort of behaviour that on the same day this article was printed, Lady Munro was sent to jail for two months. The severity of the punishment reflecting a habitual drunkenness charge. It's not unreasonable to think that this was the law's best shot at having her in Adelaide and fit to give evidence when the trial came around. Lady Munro even got medical care over the next six weeks. When the trial began, on Wednesday the 7th of October 1891, Lady Munro was in court, sober and ready to testify. There was just one problem. Lady Munro wasn't just an aristocratic alcoholic, now she was an aristocratic alcoholic amnesiac. Ask her about the night she was attacked and she couldn't remember a thing. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Notorious Lady Munro. The third and final installment, A Most Remarkable Woman, will go on general release very soon. But if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear it right now, ad-free. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening.